Hello there, this is Sheila Pearl with our very first episode of Making Love Better. And what better date to launch our new podcast program than on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2021. So let's talk about making love better. And when I say that, I'm just wondering, what are you thinking? Are you thinking we're going to be talking about having better sex? The answer is sometimes. Oh, well, are we going to be talking about, you know, just how to communicate better and making your relationships more loving? Absolutely. We're going to be talking about that. The fact is we're going to be talking about many aspects of what love isn't what love is, what love can be for you in your life with everyone that matters to you, whether it's your children, whether it's your uh, members of your family, your coworkers, but most importantly, also your significant other, whatever that is for you, so that you experience more intimacy, more connection and more satisfaction in your important relationships. So I've been doing this 40 years with people, helping people love each other better, making love better, creating more intimacy, learning how to even, learning things like how to kiss better so that you're actually making love better in that way as well. So today to initiate, to to have this inaugural uh, episode of this podcast, Making Love Better, I've invited a very good longtime friend of mine. Uh, this is Brian Baird, who is with a million dollar feeling, the feel great community. And I couldn't think of a better person to invite to be my very first guest with this important conversation because Brian and I are both in, in alignment in the work we do. We're all about positivity, bringing positivity and possibilities into our lives with a particular kind of mindset, a particular kind of energy. And so because Brian and I have been associated and and friends and colleagues for uh, almost 15 years, we've just, we've uh, figured that out. Um, And we, we do work together. And I know that he has many important things to share with you and with me about what he's learned in his life about making love better. So without further ado, Brian, I want to welcome you to this very first episode of Making Love Better on Valentine's Day. And I want you to just let our audience know a little something about you that you want to make sure that you share today on this important topic. Well, um, I want to make sure that we're focused on uh, spreading the word about the fact that one, making love better is absolutely within reach. It's real. It's something that... uh, that uh, everybody can have in their lives. And although you, we could say a little bit about what my work brings to the table for this discussion, is just that I'm underneath the hood. I have modalities and training that help me understand the human condition <clears throat> in some ways that, um, which is why we're so aligned, is because both of us understand the, the inner voices that get in the way of those things that uh, allow us to have those best life opportunities. Uh, as you point out, we're about a, a million dollar feeling is a community for positive living. And inside of that, we have all kinds of programs and, uh, and counseling and coaching to help people uh, achieve those things. Yet, um, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to make sure 
that we uh, we make this show making love better um the best it's going you know and it's right now just to put it in perspective not only will it be the best for everybody that's out there in this particular category but we'll already be best today and we'll just keep getting better you'll keep your your show will just keep getting better and better and better as you go forward because i know you and i know the topic thank you well i plan for this to be a running jumping start here in something that hopefully we'll get better and better because we all can get better and better. And I wanted to start with this concept that really comes from a lot of, uh, let's just say a lot of thinkers, a lot of philosophers, a lot of poets, a lot of psychologists. And one of my favorite psychologists is Eric Fromm. And Eric Fromm's really classic book is called The Art of Loving. He begins with this message. He says, love is an attitude, an orientation of character, and your sacred uniqueness. And he talks about how love is not about loving one person. Love, as he says, is an attitude, and it, re and it, it reflects your unique, your sacred uniqueness. So when we love, it comes from something deep inside us, which is not transactional. It's not an exchange, it's an expression, it's a sharing. So what have you learned in your life, Brian, that proves this true for you? That love is an attitude and it's not just about one person. Well, first it's really cool to point out in, in terms of the world of psychology, uh, Eric had a very, very powerful notion about the, the, the sacred and spiritual angles of our lives. It wasn't just treating the mind as a site as a as a uh, you know a, a, a heat pump or some other kind of system he looked at it very very um powerfully as something that uh, we are as human beings much more than just the body mind frame that we actually have a spirit side so thank you for bringing bringing eric from up um uh, it's a powerful way for us to start this discussion because what he really was saying and, and this is how it applies in my own life um what he was really saying is is that uh, we are um, the process of our lives is always on the endeavor for uh, of um, encountering the encountering the richness of love as a not so much a property but an experience. And what you were just saying inside of that quote with him is is that uh, you know or outside of the quote I should say you're saying that it's an expression. So it's really interesting because inside of our experiences we actually will give off energy as well. And so for my own personal journey, because I look at um, the power of my journey to this discussion for that matter, let alone the fact that I have a largely happy life, is, is that discovery uh, that love is an experience, that love is something that I can exude energetically or express, as you said. And um, it wasn't always that way for me. Uh, love was always very conditional. It was about does what do I get when I love? And I even had friends in college who said, love is about need, which makes it about transaction. When you have that experience where love resides in your life without transaction, you actually get happier or find happiness. You are um, more comfortable with who you are as a person. You're more powerful when you're not dependent on some feedback from what your expression of love really is. And the other thing is, I think most of the time when we look at love in a conditional form, that's not necessarily love. 
that may be more based on that need paradigm that that uh that my friends talked about many, many, many years ago is that love is all based on need. And I'm, and I actually am really, really enjoying a life. And I'm, I would just like to make sure everybody understands. I believe what my journey represents and, and perhaps yours too, Sheila, is that when you can get to that place, when love is no longer about conditions, um, your happiness factor goes way up. Your success factor goes way up. Your ability to interact with compassion goes way up because it's not about um, getting something in return. And, in, you know, even uh, if you were in business, I think your life would get better just by being looking at um, a love component inside a business that's not necessarily conditional and, or uh, transaction-based. That brings up something so important in terms of uh, what, what unconditional love is about. So many people believe that you, you must have unconditional love with your life partner. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is uh, there's really no such thing. The only real unconditional love that we are capable of creating is with ourselves. And when I have, and you can create unconditional love for yourself, which means total self-acceptance, being able to accept all of your nooks and crannies, all of your perfect imperfections. When you can love yourself unconditionally, then you can give yourself freely to everyone else in your life because you're not going to need them to validate you. You're not going to need them to, to give you the message that you're okay. You know, that book uh, years ago written, I'm okay, you're okay. Oh gosh, that's so, you're, you mean decades ago? Oh uh, yes, decades ago, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm okay, you're okay. That, and, and that was part of the message, right? If right. I can be okay with me, if I don't have to worry about what you're gonna discover about me that I'm hiding, if I can be okay with my perfect imperfections, and in a word, create a form of unconditional love for myself. I don't need to have conditions with anybody else. I don't have to look for people to um, make me okay. So this is an interesting point. There's a, one thing I wanted to sort of wonder if there's another vector for that discussion about love of, involving somebody else, you know, whether it can have a an unconditional property and and uh, and I have a thought on that that I'd like to share. And on the flips, on the other side of that discussion, where you were talking about um, that that sort of like I'm, I'm until I'm okay, you can't be okay type of thing because um, I have so it's the opposite of the way the book's written, titles written, right? I'm okay, you're okay. So if I'm not okay, then probably nothing else is going to be okay. Um, maybe uh, in a brand new relationship with the excitement and energy and zeal of something, it could feel like this is a perfect fit, but eventually. Those conditions will fall into play because I'm not, I'm no longer taking care of myself properly. So, and I can't expect you to take care of me. So then, if I'm not okay, you're not okay because now you're in this relationship with me, and everything is just kind of the shines coming off the relationship, so to speak. So, but I, but I, and I do want to just share with this um, this notion that is I do believe that I can have an unconditional love for somebody else. <clears throat> However. It's um, it's really steeped in a in a way it's steeped in a kind of training or adopting or reframing my experience or my existence because <clears throat> I find that um, 
when I get insulted or injured or let down or my expectations aren't made, that's all based on the fact that I'm still not okay. But if I can, if I can, and I'll say more about that in a second, if I can just like lean in on this idea is, is that I'm going to send love to you without any personal framing, without any personal need, then I can be unconditional about it. Like, um, there are people in politics. I won't name any names. It's not a, it's not, I just don't want to get involved in that. There are people in politics I see and they can say things as a human being that are completely to me, intractable and sometimes dangerous. I look at the person underneath that saying there's, there's something understanding the human condition. I understand that that person's probably got something going on that makes them say these kinds of things. So I can actually, um, maybe even, I will say, I can even say that I love that person, not, not the politician, not the male or the female, like that, that kind of thing, but I can love the person as a spirit, so to speak, or as an energy in the human frame <clears throat> without consideration for whether they're serving me in any way. Well, so, uh, so there's some purity to this idea of what, and it could be a significant other. I could do the same thing as even though I feel injured and let down and <clears throat> um, perhaps offended, and maybe the relationship's not even working, I can still send love and feel that love for person without any kind of condition. Now that's not an easy framing because as human beings, we are, we can feel pain. And so to your point, it's challenging to be unconditionally loving somebody else that I get, but going back to the other point and now, and then obviously you've got some thoughts here. Um, the other point though is, is that it's much more challenging for me to give love to others if I'm not able to capture that in my own self. And so if I looked at the person I was 20 years ago, maybe even a decade ago, um, I don't think I could have this conversation today because I would still be caught up in the idea that <clears throat> the other person's not serving my needs and therefore I don't feel loved because I wasn't loving myself the way I can do today. Exactly. So you're really pointing to uh, something that's often been said about the Buddha, that's often said that the Buddha, being the Buddha, saw everyone as a Buddha. He saw the thief in the streets as a Buddha. Mm -hmm. He saw, you know, the prince on the hill as a Buddha. In other words, the Buddha was able to see that, that essential essence, as you say, or that spiritual quality in every human being. And so he did not approach anyone from a judgmental point of view. And when you take judgment out, love can reside. And I often say that in a space of judgment, love goes on vacation. Ooh, that's a beautiful statement. Say that again now, because I think we, we should make sure that resonates with everybody out there. Okay. When judgment is a part of any relationship, love goes on vacation. <sighs> That settles with me as such a truth um, because um, judgment is actually a non-loving, in my opinion, it's a non-loving act. It's, um, it's an, um, it's a uh, energy of, it's an energy of, um, of selfishness to be judgmental in my estimation that while I'm busy judging you, I've decided to suspend evaluating my own terms in life, my own experiences, and make it all about you and what you're doing that I can judge you for. 
And there's also a big difference between judging and discerning, because I might be evaluating how you're manipulating and managing your life and experiences, which is very different than, than trying to make it so that I can suspend my own development and personal requirements and, and even my ability to love so that I can somehow rather frame you as something darker instead of positive. And it's what I think judgment really does is it's pushing somebody into a dark box as opposed to putting somebody in a positive light. Exactly. So in my self-love coaching program called Into Me See, um, the whole point of engaging in finding ways to love yourself more completely is to get to the point where you reach that non-judgmental place where you're able to forgive yourself and others so that you're not in that place of either self-judgment or judgment of others. Because what I've learned in my last past 40 years plus of clinical work and work as a coach as well, is that wherever someone is judging someone else, they're kind of pointing their finger at something in someone else they don't want to see themselves. I think that's profoundly true. And so if they don't want to see it in themselves and they're pointing the finger at someone else, they're actually judging themselves out of the gate, right? And, and so, and if they're judging themselves but don't even realize it, there's no room for real love in that space because judgment has created walls and barriers and screens and uh, veils. So we have all kinds of secrecy, we have all kinds of barriers and how, how can you have any intimacy of any kind? when you've got the walls, the barriers, and the, and the curtains and the veils. And for that matter, I would say an element of falling. So you're falling away from the space that is healthier for you. Um, and um, these, um, this idea of the whole thing you just said is, is resonates so strongly with me and from the, the, the perspective of, <clears throat> in, in many ways, judging isn't just about um, avoiding our inner truth about, you know, that which bothers us, because that's clearly can be, that's a truth. I, I completely see that. But, but I also see judging as a way for us to hold on to fear. And for me, like you say, judgment and love can't occupy the same space. I say the same thing about love and fear. They cannot occupy the same space. So I'm going to equate to some degree that judgment and fear go hand in hand. And that in many ways, for me, is the, the primary language I like to talk about as a sort of a, a, a stuckness or a limiting ability to move forward is when I am in a place of fear, I'm not necessarily even thinking about the ability to have love, and I'm certainly not able to um, express it at that moment. In a state of fear, uh, love becomes uh, a, and I've, I even like to even say it this way, love is a thriving deal. And fear is a surviving deal. That's a great way of putting it. Let's underscore that. Love is, uh, oh, uh, say it again. Love is a thriving deal. Uh, yeah, love is a thriving deal. And fear is a surviving deal. And fear is a surviving deal. Absolutely. Now, there may be times somebody's running at you, brandishing a firearm. Maybe you need to be afraid and not so much worry about love at the moment. Go, run, move, or defend. Okay. Um, that's the Absolutely. human frame. We, we need fear <laughs> mm -hmm. often to protect us in a time mm -hmm. of crisis. Absolutely. Right. 
But this, this, is, this is what I know about fear and judgment. Just as I said, judgment creates these barriers, these walls, these veils, uh, and, and, and diminishes the access to one another. In other words, the access point is almost... Uh, it's zeroed out. It, it's, it's zeroed out, right? And where you have fear, studies have been done on this, your ability to see what's in front of your face is diminished tremendously. In other words, when you're in a state of fear, you cannot see clearly. You cannot see the whole picture, right? right? So you can't see the other person and you can only see one aspect of yourself and that aspect of yourself is the victim. And victimization in any relationship is incredibly toxic. So the other things we just talked about, like the fight or flight experience from a real threat. And then we had these emotionally supportable threats that have experiences of reality for us. Like somebody has, um, is constantly abusing us emotionally or physically or um, mentally or, you know, one of those things. So those kinds of threats can be very, very real. And sometimes the, the, the threat we perceive isn't so direct it's the, the fear of non-nurturing, the fear of gaps of, that of have failure in them. It's a fear of uh, not being served with my needs that aren't necessarily fight or flight based, but we perceive them as such. And so it puts us in this state of making, if we're going to express or feel we're expressing love, it becomes conditional because now we're looking at shutting down these lack of things that put us in touch with fear. <clears throat> or we can uh, look at it from the perspective of, if, um, if I'm in fear-based state, but there's not an emergency here, then it's something that's been either been building up. And but the exciting part about it is, is whether it's built up or not, meaning it's carried through in my life and I haven't been letting it go. It's the exciting part is, is you can let that go. You don't have to live in the fear state. It's, we weren't made, meant to live in a fear state. You know, when we were a hunter-gatherer society, we were worried about real threats. Uh, and I, and I talk about physical threats, you know, I, I, there may have been developmental aspects in the human condition that had some of the same things we see today, maybe forms of abuse or control or other narratives that take place in people's lives. But we were primarily concerned, our real threats were primarily concerned around whether or not we were going to get attacked by something or, uh, be frozen or whatever the case may be, or not find enough food. And now we live in a different society where that attack isn't so necessarily right in front of us, but we're perceiving it as such. So a good example of a fear-based relationship is mm -hmm. one in which there's a lot of jealousy and possessiveness. Oh, yeah. And that comes from one partner or both being afraid that they're not going to keep the person they want to keep or they're not gonna get what they think they need to have or, or what to experience from that person. So there's always looking at the situation from the standpoint of uh, what I need, what I have to have, and then the, the perspective about what do I want to give to my, my loved one and what do they need has gone out the window. That you're, when you're in a state of fear, you're not even thinking about what the other person needs. Yeah, you're in survival mode at that point. Unless, of course, you're the ultimate people pleaser. Who's well, always, that's a, but that's a survival tool, too. And we uh, definitely about. a survival tool. So the people pleaser will give themselves away in order to get what they think they have to have. And then when they don't get it, they're pissed off. Pardon my French. 
Right. So in both cases, I think we're talking about people who are, um, they're missing their, there's a, there's an equation in the human condition that makes it so that we can move through society more smoothly. And that is, is having a sense of individual power, personal power. And when we are insecure, we get jealous. When we're insecure, we might overserve. We might be a giving a people pleaser, as you said. When we're insecure, we're looking to medicate or fill our holes of fear uh, by either um, um, uh, oh, you know, serving somebody. We put this one of our shields is says in order for me to feel loved, which is a, and, and we're not looking at the necessary love from the healthy, unconditional perspective. We're looking at love from the transactional transactional perspective. That if I'm if I'm a people pleaser, I'm transactioning love into my life. It's a and that kind of love is more of a medication kind of love. Uh, not recreational, just it's more like filling a hole type of love. And frankly, um, I would argue it's not really love. It's it's the it's a facsimile of such because I'm not even able to process and receive it from by myself or for myself. So I don't even know what love really looks like. So I'm just taking these energies from people because I'm pleasing them, or for that matter, if I'm putting my what uh, the other scenario I had was if I put my um, if I'm in, put myself in being a victim and I put my shields up uh, in this and because I'm jealous or other areas where I'm um, feeling like that I'm not being, I'm not getting my medication of love. I'm not getting that transactional love. So I will become jealous. And that goes right back to the same root is deep down inside. I have not gotten a, uh, a sense of my self love and my self worthiness and my, so my power of myself and my power of my love are not residing within me. So everything outside, which is supposed to fill that hole, uh, puts me at risk of either not feeling validated and medicated or actually feeling like the only way I can be medicated and, um, and verified or validated is to go out and give of myself until I'm spent. Um, and um, what I wanted to do, if it's all right, you agree with that, right? I do totally. Right. Yeah. I was, so I, was I wanted to do this as ask you is like, here's the challenge I think is if we're not careful as as uh, in our discussion here, it was going to say, it's like, it's your fault, human being who is listening. If you're suffering in a, in a relationship where you're not happy because you're the victim of neglect or you're the, finding yourself giving and giving and giving and not getting in return uh, or getting something in return only because you're giving, um, it's your fault. And I like to kind of let people know is, is that I don't believe that just because you're a victim, that it's your fault you're a victim. I, that in fact, that, that thought doesn't leave my head, let on my lips, is I think the challenge we have before us is if we aren't in that state of wholeness that allows us to not be jealous and not overgive and all these other things and actually show up in somebody's life and have them show up for us in a healthy way where the transactional love is, is virtually non-existent, if not outright gone, it's, it's because of the way our life was handed to us or developed for us. When we're little kids, we can't develop, we can't develop our independent streaks and all that stuff. We may have some aspects of it that show up, but I liken it from the ideas is that if you're, if you know somebody who's going through um, this kind of thing where they're per always getting an abusive relationship, so they're always people pleasing or all these other things is that's how they were surviving. And we should not be judging people for how they survive. And what we really want to do is hand people tools and um, alternate mechanisms for managing their life 
so that they can actually rest in the foundation of a solid version of themselves. And the, one of the best things we should do is realize that there's no judgment in this thing is when we say this is happening to you, it's not your fault. However, it, it's in your power to resolve um, by working with somebody like you, Sheila, to spend the time and energy understanding how to love oneself and express one's personal power and have a truth that is uh, very well understood. And these kinds of things very often get masked because our parents give us stories. The school system gives us stories. Our peers might hand us stories. Injuries might give us stories. And maybe even for that matter, genetic, genealogical memories can be passed on to us also. Um, there's now more and more scientific evidence that shows that some people have like Holocaust children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors act like they just came out of the Holocaust, even though they were never there. And some of it may be familially conditioned because of the way Holocaust survivor parents raise their children, but some of it's actually now understood to be genetic. So you can actually have an imprint in your life that dominates your language of that makes you try to fill these holes as we've been describing them. And it's the, the important part I'm trying to say here is this, it's not anybody's fault that they're in that state. We should not judge people who are people pleasers or victims. We should be actually reaching out to them in the kind of love we're talking about saying, I understand you. I get you. I have compassion for your situation and, and let's help you get to a place where you no longer feel this and no longer have this experience. Absolutely. Uh, you've raised a tremendously important point and distinction here. And that is, what is life all about? We don't come out of the womb perfectly formed. We, how do we learn lessons? We make mistakes. We fall. We, we often learn our best lessons in life the really hard way by getting really beat up. I liken it like this, though, if you don't mind my interjecting here, is that if I'm always busy preventing my daughter from falling, then the stories that she's living by are my stories. If she falls and learns from her own stories, then she's more authentic. She's more real. She's learned how to, how to use, use these lessons in her life, and she's more powerful and potentially more capable of loving and other things in the authentic way, the rich way, the not unconditional way. Sorry, I just wanted to interject the ideas. No. What you just said was is <clears throat> when you make your own mistakes – which is kind of in some ways learning the hard way um, you have an authentic story in there, but so many, how many parents go like, don't do that. You'll fall. And that's not even an authentic statement. Don't do that. You might fall is very different than don't do that. You'll fall. Um, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? So, <laughs> so I, I often, those are the things Brian, I mean. Yeah, exactly. So Brian, I often say your message is your mess. Right? Your message. Is I thought your, it was the other way around. Your mess becomes your message. Or your, or your mess becomes your message. Or it could be both ways, right? In other words, all of life can be measured by the problems we need to solve, by the challenges that we get to overcome, by the obstacles that we learn to work through. And, and that's part of the, creating resilience in ourselves, in our relationships, and our capacity to love fully. And um, so I, I, I want to honor that idea that you brought up just a minute ago about... It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Uh, and and to, to have compassion for yourself, to have empathy for the other person. And getting back to the Buddha, being the Buddha, sees everyone as a Buddha. 
So when, you know, when you can find that inner compassion for yourself or for someone else, the lessons can be learned more readily because you're not in that state of, of judgment. It's kind of like, oops, I made a big mistake. Oh, I fell down again. Ah, what was I thinking? I should have had a V8. All of that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what you, you're saying is, is that um, also is, is that um, when we are able to recover that state of self-love, when we're able to recover and I look at these things as all interconnecting, looping type things. So they got this concept of personal power and this concept of self-love and this concept of personal truth. And then I add to that, by the way, in my own work, I add to the concept of trust. So, so in order for me to trust you, I have to trust myself. In order for me, for me to um, be able to be trustable, I have to trust myself. In order for, you know, the, the trust thing becomes a loop. And the other thing is, is that if I'm truly trusting myself, I probably am not going to attract people into my life that are untrustable. If they do show up, I recognize them right away as untrustworthy or untrustable. Right. Uh, because I've developed that foundation. And then the idea is, is that my trust is also linked to my self-love. If I truly want to love myself, I have to trust myself. I can't, I can't just love myself and not trust myself because then I'm not honoring what I, I'm not really there yet. I can't honor myself with trust if I don't truly love myself yet. So it's, there are a lot of indications. If I can't have a self-honest conversation, a self-trusting conversation, a self-loving conversation and be in my power, which more of like the power of vulnerability, not the power of force for sure. <clears throat> if I can stand in those four things and then I can also have people in my life <clears throat> where that energy will go back and forth equally between us as opposed to always having these holes that need to be filled um, which invites all kinds of other kinds of strange um, imbalanced opportunities in our lives which is why we might become victims over and over and over and over again because we're not standing in our truth or we're not loving ourselves or whatever the case may be but the important part of this is that it's not your fault from my perspective it's not your fault not because your fault. you're living stories that were handed to you not because the stories are you know, this, you didn't create the stories is what I'm saying. Well, well the, the, beauty, uh, the beauty of just being alive uh, is to recognize that we have come into this life to learn more about being who we are. And we don't learn that overnight. It's a process. What? <laughs> and can, can and, we be born? perfect yeah i think we are right, right. so uh, uh you know many many sages say we are born perfect and then we forget and then we have to spend our whole life remembering right so I, and that's brilliant that's brilliant yeah i know that's not necessarily but you're repeating something that was said but it, and that's brilliant because i think in many ways we are conceived or born perfect we all know about personal love we all know about personal power we all know about our truth we all, and they may be simpler terms when we're first born. We might just be needing to be nurtured and get some sleep and be giving a personal intention and love mm -hmm. and, you know, <clears throat> um, so the, and then if anything, I'd like to actually just put on the side, I'll put it, I'll come back to what I'm saying here. I'd like to add this little side note. Probably the, one of the most obvious ways to have unconditional love is the love between a mother or a parent and a child um, <clears throat> when they're first born. Is that that sort yes. of ooh, yeah. you, you just just all in all it is is just some kind of glow 
you can't account for. You're not looking at that baby and going, they better go shopping with me or else they better get A's in school. That's not what you're thinking about when that child's first in your life. And that's probably one of the best examples. That that creeps in for many parents later, doesn't it? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Because their stories are still playing out in some ways too. So, So I wanted to have a little side thing. So if there's a way to actually sort of, sort of express this in an image-based thing is this, the love of a mom with their newborn. That's almost that pure unconditional love that we're talking about in that regard. <clears throat> but, um, and I should say, so going back to where I was going with this, um, the stories that we have that are given to us by people as we, you know, we're born with this purity and then, you know, then those statements, don't do that, you'll get hurt. Um, you know, several of my clients who have kept, they started their journey with me through weight loss considerations, or as we come now call it weight release. <clears throat> the idea was, is they, they remember the words from one or both parents that left them feeling body image conscious and insecure, which is something as simple as, wow, for a fourth grader, you're kind of pudgy or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and they carry that with them for decades because they suddenly think that I'm only worth something if I'm the right body shape. I'm only worth something if, you know, especially from a parent, those words are so searing and scarring and, um, and seem or feel so permanent, although they, they aren't permanent. We can, we can deal with that, but that's a story they carry with them on the arc of their life until they get a chance to fully release that story. Right. Uh, and find out deep down inside that conversation was crap. They, 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 they don't have to medicate against that because the story was wrong, not them. Right. Well, it's a good example of we learn by making mistakes. We also learn about what's true by having to face what's false, what is a lie. Beautiful. Uh, right. So Beautiful. it's really important that we understand that self-love doesn't mean I can only love myself unconditionally when I'm perfect. No. Exactly. In fact, I would argue it's not going to happen. We're all works in progress and never perfect. So let's get loving where we can, where we are. Exactly. So the, the task at hand is to recognize we are all works in progress all of the time. I'll be totally transparent. Brian, you know what my age is. I just celebrated my 79th birthday. So I'm on my way to 80. I plan to live to be at least 160. So there you have it. So, (laughs) so in the meantime, uh, I look forward to learning more about how to love myself more tomorrow or today than I did yesterday or, or the week before, recognizing that we can all learn and grow all the time. There's no such thing as perfection. We will never attain it, which is a good thing. So right? saying that, saying that, I think I'd like to sort of share some of my own personal stories. So, um, so Sheila, you've known me 15 years, and even though you had argued, said something about us being colleagues, we were only colleagues over the last few years because when you and I first met I was on a particular bend in my journey that would have made it so we were really just connected but not necessarily aligned Correct. and um, in the course of that um, is you know what I'm looking at is the idea is, is that here I am several decades into my life and then all of a sudden I'm like almost like there was just giant rubber bands holding me back and then the uh, the acceleration of all of this discovery um, but and the initial part of it was extremely uncomfortable, if not downright painful. But now it's I'm at a, a place now where you talk about this where works in progress is that for the most part, <clears throat> many of my lessons now don't come to me from pain. They come to me from the discovery 
that is now exciting. So I may have something, well, that was a little bit odd, or sometimes it might be a little uncomfortable because, and that discomfort is really just an indication I've got something to learn. And <clears throat> so the, this is an important part because I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't develop and transform is, and they stay where they are is because they innately know that they have to examine some very painful stuff to get there. Uh, so I, I was just thinking of Elizabeth Lesser's book called Broken Open. Mm -hmm. And her book is about her account of her experience with divorce. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyone who's gone through a divorce, everyone's unique, but most divorces, <laughs> I, I know, Brian. So, uh, but everyone who's gone through a divorce, with rare exception, will recall that it's not exactly a pleasant experience. It's usually painful. And with anything in life that is painful for us, whether it's the loss of a relationship through divorce or a loss of a relationship through death uh, or other variations on that theme itself, we are literally broken open. Uh, you know, we, we call it a broken heart, right? But the value of, of going through these painful uh, experiences of loss and pain and disconnect and catastrophe is that it breaks us open to expand us to other aspects of ourselves, right? So sometimes without those painful situations like a divorce or the loss of a loved one, I'm a widow and uh, Brian is, uh, is experienced in being divorced. Uh, in both cases, we have suffered loss and there's a grieving process to that, which is another aspect of love. And a lot of people don't even wanna take a chance to open themselves and be vulnerable in a loving relationship because they're afraid of suffering loss or disappointment. We should probably have a show because I think we can't finish this particular aspect of this stuff, but I think we should talk about how grief can feed making love better. The, uh, because um, in my own journey and your journey and all these other things, how we can actually talk about something that we have no control of that can bring us, deliver us that kind of loss, pain, loss, so maybe, Brian, we have part two of this conversation. Perhaps, perhaps. So, so, you so getting back to what you were saying now is, okay, is that we good. have grief as part of the equation, right? <laughs> that, that's one of the pain points that comes into our life. Um, and, um, um, and, and I would say is, is that loss is not something we necessarily have control over because somebody's passing away, could happen at any time. Uh, a relationship could somebody, somehow or other alter itself over time. Um, even careers could alter. So we could, we'll face loss along the way that aren't necessarily planned for us or that we know about until they happen. Uh, what I was talking about in terms of the works and pro first of all, as a work in progress, I handle grief very differently today than I did even two years ago. So I look at more grief as a friend <laughs> uh, that's pointing to something as opposed to back then it was an unwanted visitor. <laughs> it's it's unwanted when you first encounter it because nobody wants that kind of change. It's rapid. But when you really take a look at closely, you get a chance to explore what that really means. But going back to the idea of works in progress is I would love to help see everybody. I want to help the whole world get to this point where, where they recognize that they're not just works in progress, but they can actually, instead of waiting for the pain points to make their change, they can find change in the nuances of their life. And frankly, whether you recover from a grief or a loss or other pain point, or whether you, you're doing all the nuance and discovery that goes with your work in progress development, there's joy in every stretch. 
I find that my happiest moments are from the learning and the stretch that goes with the learning, whether it comes from deep pain or whether it comes from something I just discovered in the act of living. You know, I can't remember the exact quote from the Bible, but it goes something like this uh, in terms of the, although there may be darkness in the, in the deep of night, joy cometh in the morning. In other words, where we often have our deepest pain and suffering, joy cometh in the morning. There's a certain joy that, that comes with being able to prevail through that pain, through that darkness, through that difficulty, and experiencing the joy in being able to be not just a survivor, but a thriver. The joy that comes from knowing your own inner capacity that you never knew was there, and you would not have known it was there had you not been through that particular painful experience. I think that's a gem right there, is that the idea is, is that we, instead of spending our time avoiding the pain, let's figure out what the pain is really telling us. I mean, if I get my, if I cut my finger, the pain's telling me stop cutting myself. <laughs> if I, um, if I uh, have pain from going out and freezing myself, scraping ice off my windshield without gloves on, it'll tell me hey, maybe next time you wear gloves. So there are, so, you know, why shouldn't we do that emotionally? And that's because we're not trained. We're not trained to examine our emotional pain. We're only trained to examine our physical pain and, and treat it at, the, at that level. So um, what I liken about what you do is that you really are helping people because one aspect of your work is grief. And uh, although I touch on grief, I'm, I'm not as deeply immersed in the subject as you are. And, um, and one of the things that I think is really powerful about the work that you're doing here is, is that, the, is that um, you're giving people the tools to manage grief and learn from the grief instead of hide from the grief which is how we get to move forward if you're hiding from the grief that grief will follow you it stays with you it it in my personal experience mm -hmm. it can last decades until i learned to process grief and i should have come to you for it right but until <laughs> i learned to process grief um grief didn't just follow me it compounded it built and it was grief on top of grief because I was not learning to use the grief as a lesson. I was using the grief as something to hide, bury, sub subdue, bludgeon even. Right. Don't deal with the grief. Smart move maybe for a moment, not a smart move for a long time. What I've learned as a bereavement uh, counselor for over 40 years is that in the grief, is a tremendous blessing because the grief reminds us that something mattered and something still matters. And there are ways to use whatever it is we're grieving as a way to grow and to add blessings to our lives because we have added awareness. I, I officiated at a funeral a couple of days ago uh, for a family that I've served for over 22 years. Uh, I've known them over 22 years. They come to me over the years for weddings and bar mitzvahs and baby namings and, and uh, funerals. And uh, the patriarch of the family died at the age of 89. And he was such a live wire. He loved collecting 
antiques and antique victrolas and and records and he loved to go to flea markets and he loved his children his grandchildren his great-grandchildren so he he left a legacy of of loving and giving and sharing and being involved in the lives of the people that he loved so the grieving that was taking place in that family was to sense the loss of someone who enriched them also and i reminded them that you need to keep telling the stories of your grandpa, of your poppy, of your father, of your great-grandfather, because he's a role model for the next generations. I liken, uh, it's just a recent uh, thought on my part, and I, when somebody has lost somebody in their lives, I often let, tell them is to let the memories of that loved one become the rocket fuel for your moving forward, because... Um, the last thing I want anybody to experience is being frozen in the wake of losing a loved one. I often say the tears of grief are the lubricant for the soul. Ooh, that's even better. I'm, I'm, can I borrow that? Yeah, absolutely. The tears of grief are lubricant for the soul <clears throat> because our capacity to cry tears in response to losing someone we love is our body's way of saying, you mattered. And that's precious. Uh, and that's, you know, just a reminder of what love can do when, when love is, is real, when, when the connection is, is authentic, when, when you experience being seen and heard, right? I'm watching the clock. And Have I'm, we made love better yet? We're making love better every second here, I, I think. Don't you think, Brian? Yep, I think we've, you know, it's only 50 minutes. If you want to talk for another five hours, I could keep going. Well, I, I think we should plan our next uh, interview, our next conversation, because uh, I think we need uh, part two of this one, because we've mentioned how important grief is in terms of love, making love better. And I'd like very much to expand that conversation because it's extremely important. A lot of people, when, when they hear that I'm not only a relationship coach, but a grief counselor, they say, what, what's that got to do with, what's one got to do with the other? Oh my gosh, they're so interconnected. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, what, one can't exist without the other. In other words, right. if, you, if, you, if you haven't loved, then losing you know, doesn't even happen, right? But right. if you love, you take the chance of losing, but that's the price you pay. It's well, if, can we give a, people somebody if, if i am i am i coming back on for this grief discussion yes I'm, okay, I'm so going i'd to like to give people uh, two minutes about my journey with grief is one is i i grieved my marriage failure before it was even over and uh, that's an important thing to that, share and that happens a lot by and the way and then i also um i grieved the loss of my innocence for five plus decades before i dealt with it wow so I have to wonder what that means. I don't presume so, to know well, what grieving the loss of your innocence. I, what does that mean? Just give ooh, me a clue. No way. I'm going to leave you in suspense. Oh, you, oh, this cliffhanger. Oh, 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 it's a cliffhanger. You're good, Brian. You're good. Okay. For, so part two, watch for part two of this conversation, episode right. two, which is part two of this. You didn't know that when you did your inaugural show for Making did, Love Better, that you were going to be doing one of those serial movies from the 1940s and 50s. So remember that we're going to have episode two of our, of our new uh, podcast.
podcast, Making Love Better, with Brian Baird of the Million Dollar Feeling, the great, the feeling great community or the feel great community. Thank you. And Brian's all about flipping the script, own your story, change the world. And so Brian's always enriching our world with the work he does in many different ways. It's probably worth my saying is that even though I'm your inaugural guest, and maybe we've got another show coming up here to talk about, um, you have many, many exciting people in the works to come on your show. Um, so the people who tune into your show are going to have amazing discoveries. Amazing. I do. Wow. I do. And one of them is Reverend John Rednick. Oops, we lost your audio, Sheila. Lost my audio. There you go. You're back. Okay. So we have, we have uh, Pastor John, John Rednick. I'm, I'm sorry, not Rednick, Redmond. Redmond, okay. <laughs> Redmond, Redmond, who is the new pastor starting in January, this is January, of the United Presbyterian Church here in Newburgh. But I've known John for many years, and we met through. Uh, you know, business working years ago. And I know because of his life of this church and, and through the, some of the things that he's gone through in his life recently, his wife has uh, survived cancer. He's become a new grandfather. Many, uh, you know, life's trials and tribulations, joys and, uh, you know, tribulations and, uh, and uh, excitement and, and joy. Uh, he has much to share with us. He's about my vintage. He's a little bit younger. I think he's about 10 years younger, maybe maybe a little younger even. But the point is that John has been around the block a few times. He's not, a, he's not wet behind the ears here. So he has much to share. Well, what with you us. folks are doing is you're bringing to the table this notion that the golden years can go 60, 70, 80 years. Because you're yes. going to be living to 160. And if anybody can pull that off, I know you can do it. <laughs> so, so John uh, Redmond is going to be one of my next guests. And, but you, we can look forward to part two of Brian's conversation with me on making love better. So remember, love is a verb and love is an attitude. And it's all about bringing our sacred uniqueness to the world by the way we love. Until next time, this is Sheila Pearl, the love doctor, saying bye-bye. <laughs>